Wait a minute. He's after you. He... Who the hell are you? Well, I, I'm, I'm a romance novelist. You're what? What are you doing here? I told you. My sister's life depends on me. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. <coughs> and I, macheteing my way through the forest, am Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I've made him watch another movie. Yeah. Another movie from the magical year of 1984. What was happening? (laughs) A lot of, at the time, groundbreaking and really good, and in retrospect, sometimes problematic movies. Yeah. That were, were, were very influential on my teenage years. Oh my goodness, there's so many movies from that year that seem to have just, like, stuck in the... The zeitgeist, in a way. I don't know what to think. (laughs) Well, we're watching an action-adventure movie from 1984, but it's not an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, And it's actually, we selected this movie because it's February. And February makes us think of Valentine's Day. We wanted a romantic theme Ah. for, for February 2022. So we watched... The 1984 movie Romancing the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, featuring Danny DeVito, and directed by Robert Zemeckis. A Zemeckis film! Now, Robert Zemeckis is better known, I would say, for the movie that came out a year later, Back to the Future. Oh, I was going to say, Roger Rabbit came out four years later. <laughs> what are you talking about, Dad? Now, he... Um, he he has directed a number of movies, and every single one of them, at least starting with uh, Back to the Future, every single one of them had some kind of movie-making innovation involved. Oh, yeah. But Romancing the Stone is, in many ways, I'd say just a straightforward, well-constructed action-adventure movie. It is. It's, mm, well, kind of. They're kind of. There's a part of your sentence there that I'm not quite sure I agree with. Oh, what's that? I'm going to let us figure that out. Okay. It's an interesting film, though. It's got a... It's a film that definitely has a lot of cool little moments, at least from what we were seeing. It had cool... Like, it, it went from scene to scene and all that. Okay, I'll be honest. The part that I'm not so sure of is straightforward. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's it has enough twists to be interesting. But I'd say that its construction is fairly straightforward in that it's got, you know, the rising action resolution, new stakes, new rising action. I guess. <sighs> well, as usual, when we're talking about a movie, at least, there are spoilers involved. We can kind of set up and summarize the plot of this, or the premise of this, pretty quickly. Kathleen Turner plays Joan Wilder, who lives in New York City and is a romance novelist. Doesn't have any experience in romance herself, as far as we can tell. 
not even sure she has a lot of interest, but she is a best-selling romance novelist. And she suddenly has to help her sister, who's in trouble. Her sister's been kidnapped by people in Colombia who want a treasure map. And the sister has already mailed the treasure map to Joan Wilder in New York. So to save her sister, Joan Wilder has to go to Colombia, meet them in Cartagena, the port and resort city on the coast, and deliver this treasure map in exchange for her sister. She winds up getting lost. There wind up being other parties interested in this map. And she gets through this only with the help of Jack T. Colton, a kind of, I would say, a generic adventurer. He's down there attempting to raise money or earn money by, uh, at the time, he is uh, trapping exotic birds and going to sell them, presumably on the black market somewhere, yeah. and make enough money to buy the yacht that he wants so that he can sail around the world. Lady is dragged out of her element to bring the MacGuffin MacGuffin to bad people while being chased by other bad people. Meets love interest. Hijinks ensue. That's about right. Okay, I got it. And the tension, of course, is how much can Joan trust Colton? Uh, How much should she trust him? He's really out for himself. He wants this map and the treasure, El Corazon, that it leads to, which is, it turns out to be a, a giant uh, emerald, I believe. Yeah, it's it, g- giant generic glowy stone. <laughs> and he wants, essentially, he wants that for himself because then he's set for life. And yet they're attracted to one another. To what extent does that attraction overpower his interest in just getting the money? To what extent does it ex- distract her from the goal of getting her sister back? The answer to that is not very, but it does distract her somewhat. So it is action-adventure with a healthy influx of romance to complicate the plot. And it's there's a lot of things that are decidedly generic about this film. And that's going to... We always reference like how we know and how we've, we've interacted with this film before we watched it. Yeah. And the answer is, I knew nothing about this film. And watching it, I couldn't tell if I did or did not, because there's so many things, so many moments in this film, I swear I've seen elsewhere, that I can't tell if other things are referencing this film, or if this film is just a very well-polished version of an adventure story bingo card that I've seen (laughs) filled out by numerous episodes of TV shows elsewhere, by other films and movies. Like, there is absolutely, like, ironic comeuppance moment for the villain where it looks like they won. A direct parallel where the second time the action doesn't work the way you expect it to. A sudden car chase that you don't expect that uh in a vehicle that that is better suited than you'd expect uh adventure out of their element actually gets good at it there's all these moments where it's like i've seen this a random random festival happening in the town you decide to to wait at 
all of these things feel like a bingo card. I feel like I like they're they're that generic. But these are well done enough. I can't tell if they're they're generically on this this you know template because of this film or not. And I'm like, ah, wait a minute, what? Did you start this or are you just good at it? I think that's one of the really interesting things about this movie. There is, to some extent, the fact that this was a popular movie. It was an influential movie, not as much as some other movies from 84, but it was a popular and influential movie, and it's almost 40 years old now. So it has influenced other movies that have come since since uh, this one. Are you saying this movie was a more influential thing than 2010? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I probably would. Okay. Just checking. But there's also the fact that this movie was very self-aware. Our heroine is a romance novelist who writes romantic adventure novels, which is are about taking familiar tropes that the readers want and expect in that genre and doing fresh, new, interesting things with them while still making it clearly within the bounds of that genre. And that's what this movie was doing. It definitely was hewing to very specific romantic adventure tropes. And the fun was seeing where the expected tropes were going to come into play, how they were going to interact, and how well was this movie going to deliver on them. So I think that the bingo card approach, I think that is a perfectly valid way to assess the critique, but also appreciate this movie. Was how many of those bingo card squares does it fill in, and how well does it do its job of filling in each one of them? That's part of the fun for me. Okay, yeah. It even comes to the it comes to uh, full circle at the the end or the beginning of the movie. We start to see this western adventure scene, and it turns out that it's what we're seeing is the dramatization of the final chapter of her latest novel that Joan Wilder is is writing, sitting in her apartment. At the end of the movie, after this big adventure, she has delivered a new novel to her editor, which she has written in record time, and it turns out that it is a narration of the adventure that she's just been on. So, absolutely, the adventure that she was on fits all of the requirements of a category romance novel. (laughs) She just changed the ending in the book version compared to how the ending then plays out a few moments later in the her life version. Yeah, she gives the book a happy ending and then the movie turns out to have an even happier ending. Exactly. Or a more more dramatic and exciting ending. Uh, in some ways that bingo card approach means that I don't feel like we have to go through the the film in sequence though. No, I don't think we do. I think you've covered so many of of the important parts. There's the, you know, the the various turnabouts of of fortune, the the romantic interludes like the opportunity for a a dance at the the fiesta that happens to be occurring after they buy uh beautiful new clothes that fit them perfectly because they're movie stars. Exactly. There's little bits I want to review, though. Okay, first things first, though. They do a thing that I like whenever one of the characters is a writer, which is everyone is reading their book. (laughs) Every time, like, a character is waiting in a car for a long time, there's an open copy of her book next to them. Uh, 
there are characters who don't who 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 suddenly it's like oh wait you're this person and allegiances <laughs> change sides and our our main romantic uh hero uh p- character is one of the people who doesn't know who she is but is there like see a scene picking up one of her books and then reading it over the course of the entire adventure <laughs> and in the end holds up that and proves he's finished it and it's like that's adorable and they have some fun with the reason why her book shows up so much, especially since most of the movie takes place in Colombia. And that is that there are various factions of bad guys looking for her. Mm-hmm. So they've got a copy of her book so they can use the author photo on the back to, fo- to spot her when she gets off the plane or when she's getting on the bus and make sure they're finding the right person. But then you see, like, they're hanging out. They might as well read it. Mm-hmm. And... And yeah, it's it's interesting to see she's got fame. This is kind of what her superpower is. She's got fame and you never know when it's going to have effect. And Colton doesn't know this about her really and gets to observe other people's reaction to her. The best example of that is when they meet the bellmaker, Juan. Yes. Who's a a, a, a drug lord in a village in... in uh, uh, Columbia, because she's supposed to go to Cartagena. She winds up being intentionally by some of the bad guys sent off track. And they meet the bellmaker who kind of runs this town and all of his heavily armed men help him run this town. And things are looking really bad until Colton mentions her name. And the bellmaker is like, Joan Wilder, you're Joan Wilder. Guys, this is Joan Wilder, the lady whose books I read to you on Saturdays. Exactly. <laughs> He's delighted. He's the biggest fan in the world. Yeah. They get all this help because she's got this fame superpower. And <laughs> she- it's fun to see that happen. It's a beautiful scene. It's also fun to see Colton's reaction to it. Yeah, they, they go from they go from threatening menace to heavily armed fan club in an instant <laughs> in yes. the best way. <laughs> Little moments like that. And him being like one of the only people who hasn't heard of her is brilliant because it also means that like she doesn't have any of that influence on him which means that their interaction actually feels more like she he is the only person we see her developing that connection with because everyone else knows of her in one way or another for some reason yeah he's somebody who is a loner who has spent the last five years living on a coffee boater living in the rainforest, he's got an immunity to this fame superpower. So that means he can be snide to her. He can give her the tough help that she needs. He can take her fancy New York uh, shoes and chop the heels off them so that she can actually walk in them while they're, they're trying to trek through the jungle. Somebody who was in, in, influenced by her fame might not have been able to give her the help she needed. And mentioning the shoes, that gives a fine example. It was pointed out that they are, they they have fun with the the costuming and the characters. Where when we first meet them, they are in what is a, theoretically their more normal clothes, but they are not made up as much. The things aren't the same sort of fit. They look a little more plain. As yeah. our heroes get closer to each other and continue on their journey. They get fancy new outfits in the town. They actually get a little bit more makeup and a little bit more attention. And so being on the adventure, they come out of it 
not looking like people who have spent a haggard three days fighting their way through everything, but they come out looking more like the weirdly pristine hero characters from her novel in that sense. And I think that's especially true with Kathleen Turner and her character, because there's a more dramatic change. He, Jack Colton was a a jungle adventurer already. He becomes a little bit more of the romantic hero because we're seeing him more and more through her eyes. I'm pretty sure the shirts he's in (laughs) are the same air quotes shirt, but they're a little tighter and more fitted as it goes. So he looks a little bit more like the, the cover character. You're absolutely right. With her, she shows up in the same kind of frumpy clothes that she tended to wear in New York. Like clothes, it was almost like she had clothes she was trying to hide in. And and her hair in a in a I think in a in a bun or put up or something. And over time, you're right. They they start doing more things with her makeup. Her hair changes. Her clothes get very artfully tattered by the jungle adventures, such that they get better fitting and sexier. And she is becoming one of her own heroines over the course of this movie. And they even have some fun with that in movie where her sister finally interacts and is a little like, what? <laughs> like, she, she's, she's the person who would notice and recognize, what's going on with you? Yeah, by that final why, why, why are you Why are you in a fight throwing <laughs> knives? What's happening? She is a new woman. Yeah. Exactly. And that is fun to see. And it's fun to see that happening without Wilder realizing it until it's almost complete and she realizes how she's changed. And when we see her in New York later, she's a different person. She's interacting with her editor differently. She's interacting with people on the street differently. She has has come alive in a different sort of way. And and that's I'd say one of the main themes of the movie is the fact that this can happen when someone has the experiences that are going to bring them out of themselves. And in, in the same way that our in the same way that our heroes become more heroic looking, our villains become more villainous. <laughs> where you have two different sets of bad guys, and one of them looks to be the threatening ones at the start, but they become by action and interaction and a little bit by costuming and setup more a pair of comic characters with a a tall one, short one, classic duo styling that ends on a sillier note, and the other one turns from what looks like shady figure into, like, he switches into the terrifying military <laughs> uniform and gets beaten up and scarred and turns into an almost G.I. Joe kind of villain character by the end with this menacing presence that he had no right business having at the start of the film. Yeah, it's Colonel Zolo, who is both the chief minister of antiquities and also like the vice commander of the military police. Yeah, I know you kneel before Zod, but I don't know what you do before (laughs) Zolo, but it's something apparently. And he's been tracking this map all over the place. He winds up in New York... And just misses Wilder and and uh, ransacks her apartment trying to find the map that turned out to be in her bag because she had already picked up her mail. Did, did he stab one of her 
One of the other people in the building? Yeah, I think it was either a, a neighbor or, a, or the super of the building. I forgot winds up about getting that. Stabbed. And that never comes up again. That never comes up. That's terrifying. It, uh, I'm sorry. I'm here. We watched this movie before, and I'm only now on the microphone realizing nothing ever happens with the stabbed other person. <laughs> oh, goodness. And the other bad guys, the team that you were talking about, that is Ralph and his cousin Ira, who are the ones who have kidnapped... Wilder's sister. You're right. They're a classic team, a you know, Laurel and Hardy, Mutt and Jeff kind of team. One description I've heard of that kind of team, I think it might have been from Penn and Teller talking about Laurel and Hardy, is that you've got the idiot who thinks he's a genius and the genius who thinks he's an idiot. And cousin I, uh, Ira is, he seems to ostensibly be the brains of the outfit and keeps making poor decisions. And Ralph, played by Danny DeVito, is out actually having to do things. And noticing when things are going wrong and having to plan and think on his feet. And you know, they're, they're both bumbling. This doesn't work. But, but it is a classic sort of team. And again, they're, they're checking a box. It's just a question of how well are they checking that box. And they check that pretty well. I mean, you can't go wrong with Danny DeVito. Yeah. And they do a wonderful job of setting up a, a nice little table full of, of loaded Chekhov's guns. Oh, they get yes, to go yes. off in a brilliant sequence at the end in yeah. terms of like who has what where and how many what's are in the pit where and all of that. Yeah, it's- when you see one of the bad guys uh, cooing over his collection of, of alligators, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know that somebody's going to be on the wrong end of an alligator at some point. Oh, yeah. There's more than one person at the wrong end of an alligator, actually. And oh, speaking of the casting, we mentioned Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas and uh, and Danny DeVito. You recognize Michael Douglas? Uh, yeah, that's. I didn't recognize him at first. It, you had to point it out. I had to, it had to be pointed out to me about halfway through the movie that that was Hank Pym. Right. <laughs> oh goodness! Once I saw that, it's like, oh, cheekbones. Okay, yes, I see it. <laughs> now I don't think we've watched any other Michael Douglas movies or TV shows yet for the podcast, but you might remember. His father. Uh, Kirk Douglas. Wait, wait, what? From one of our very first episodes, one of our first three or four episodes, Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh my goodness, that was... I... Expert harpooner and all-around super cool guy Ned Land was played by Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas's father. Oh, okay, that was him playing the ukulele made out of stuff. Oh goodness, what in the world? <laughs> singing, uh, singing uh, uh, for a Disney movie, body songs about all of his adventures and girlfriends. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above, a whale of a tale, and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. Wearing that really cool striped shirt. This information is dangerous because that means my mind is trying to connect to them. That means my <laughs> mind is trying to put romancing the stone in the same world as Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Well, just for time you're gonna have to add a couple of generations in between right but that explains why there's a giant glowing green stone in columbia (laughs) oh what a pity professor 
I know you had visions of that monster mounted in a national museum. <laughs> Don't give me these sort of loopholes. This is what I am a danger to fanfic writers because I think these things. Please care, be careful. Oh, we want no. the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea romancing the stone crossover. Oh, goodness. Okay, making that, as always, making that note to check AO3. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that that's going to throw me. And his dad, Kirk Douglas, there there are a lot of Kirk Douglas things that we could watch because he was in a lot of really good movies, often playing that kind of action-adventure sort of character. He was in Spartacus, Stanley Kubrick movie. Oh, nice. And uh, and yet there's also a lot, to, a lot that we can see that starred his son, Michael Douglas. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the list. There's a lot of cool stuff here we could watch. And Kathleen Turner, I think this was probably her biggest you know, breakout movie. But she's also known as the voice of Jessica Rabbit. Oh, so she was literally just working with him four years later. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, as is often the case in movies from the 1980s, not everything in this movie holds up very well. And some th- parts of this movie are a little bit cringy. I think in general, their depiction of the nation of Colombia yeah, is not great. This is this is. This is one of the few, like, foreign adventure movies that feels distinctly not funded by that by that <laughs> nation's tourism board. Yeah, I mean, is there is there an equivalent term to Orientalism, but about broad sweeping stereotyping of Latin American countries and culture? Because if there is, this it would apply here. Yeah. I mean, was Colombia the most stable and safe place in the world in the 1980s? No. Did I know very much about Colombia to contradict what I saw in this movie? No, probably at that time, at that age, most of what I knew about the nation of Colombia came from this movie and Miami Vice. Not two great sources of information. <laughs> was, yeah, but quite, quite the set there. They fall into so many lazy tropes. The, the, the airport being a confusing mess with people sprawled all over the place and it not being clean or anything else. I actually was curious about this. The International Airport at Cartagena had just completed a $1.2 million upgrade in 1982, featuring extended runways, additional technology updates. There was a lot of resort and hotel development going on in this port city at the time, and they wanted people to be able to safely and comfortably get there. It would not have been as difficult to get from New York to the airport to the city of Cartagena as this, in 1984, as this movie portrays it to be. And it wouldn't have been that difficult to find the right bus or other transportation to get from the airport to the Hotel Cartagena in the city of Cartagena. But, you know, they have the typical, it's a third world country, so the only transport is a bus full of chickens, and the bad guy gets her on the wrong bus, so she goes out into the countryside. It worked for the story, but it was lazy. Just the scene of her editor with the long list of reasons she shouldn't go was immediately wild. Colombia? Do you have any idea what it's like in Colombia? I do. Your books do very well in these macho countries. They have jungles there, Joni. Insects the size of sanitation trucks. Revolutionaries. Have you had your shots? Shots? What shots? You see, you're completely unprepared. (sighs) And yet I could excuse that because I could see that as the viewpoint of a New Yorker who had never actually traveled to Colombia. 
good point. She knew that Jones books were popular in Colombia. And the editor makes a comment about, you know, you do really well in all these macho countries. And I like that because that was laying the groundwork for the great joke later with the bellmaker and his armed forces uh, being such great fans. But yeah, I, I could I could believe a New Yorker in 1984 having that kind of view of Columbia. To then have the movie make most of that well-founded, I'm not sure about that part. Yeah. It would have been more interesting to systematically contradict a lot of these views of this supposedly cosmopolitan New Yorker about this this nation. That's one of those things where like doing a newer version of this film, you definitely have like I don't it gets trickier because of exactly that sort of issue of of optics and of awareness. There's something there's something unique about how much this film gets away with in that sense for the and sake of the story. It's I I don't want this to come out sound wrong. I think it's getting more difficult to make certain kinds of adventure movies in the 21st century because audiences, a big enough proportion of one's audience, is sophisticated enough not to fall for the lazy tropes of adventure stories from the past millennium. You can't just say, you know, third world country and here are all the rubber stamps we can stick in this third world country to show that it's backward and dangerous. No, the world's more complicated than that. People are more complicated than that. People deserve a little more thought than that. And yeah, it's not as easy to do an adventure story. That just means you've got to work harder. And if you work harder, you can get a better story than the kind of lazy storytelling that you could get away with in, in 1984. We've discussed Bond movies before. Those have shifted with the time, not just because of the tech, but also because the connectedness of the world means his roadway fights and weird enemies aren't the same. And he does a lot more running across rooftops in places where there's rooftops and people watching him <laughs> at and people with cell phone cameras watching him no matter where he's going. And that's changed those films. And that's a film series that's got an entire franchise behind it in order to perpetuate at least maybe across one actor, but also between actors, showing this evolution of time. A single movie like this, you wouldn't even have anything to lean back on to explain your wackiness because you'd be starting from square one, making this again, in that sense. You'd have to start with how the world is. You can't depict the world that way anymore for good <laughs> dang reason. So we know better. I think that sounds like we're getting into our final question. I feel like we're getting into it early. Yeah, but yeah, probably good. But yeah, if I think we might have, might have some more to say about that. Well, it's a movie. Screen or no screen? I'm going to say screen. This was fun. It was definitely a a popcorn and, and sit back kind of film. I love the... I love the films where it's like, like get into it and the deep thought and the intense like fridge logic of like understanding the 
the meaning it's showing you. No, no, this is fun. Watch car go boom over jump, but it's great doing that, and I like it. So I'm gonna munch some popcorn and watch it. So I'm I'm saying I'm saying you know watch it, screen uh, it. I I agree. This is definitely a screen. It is a great example of this kind of just fun action adventure movie. And you know I mentioned lazy writing in terms of some of the depictions of of Colombia and such. But some of the writing is very good. There's a lot of really good dialogue, lots of really good patter between Wilder and Colton. And and that's just fun to see, fun to listen to. I think there's good chemistry between our leads. So it's just, it's enjoyable. It's easy to watch. It's fun to watch. So I would recommend anybody who has any interest in this kind of movie, yeah, watch it. It is it is fun. It is entertaining. And it's um, it's definitely enjoyable. So our second question is then revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, we got to do the thing, which is acknowledge what's already happened, because I did some Googling about this movie afterwards, and it has a sequel. And I don't know what to feel about that. Well, spoiler for the podcast, you're going to find out what you feel about it. Oh, goodness, really? Because that's our next episode. Oh, goodness, yes. Okay, <laughs> fine. Brilliant. Okay. Oh, we're watching Jewel of the Nile next. Yep. This is a preview then. So, putting aside the fact that someone decided to make a sequel about this, or mm-hmm. from of this movie, having seen just this first movie, what would you rather see? A revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Do you want to see a revival, another movie in the same continuity? Would you like to see a, a a reboot, a remake, or just let it be? I don't think, because of exactly some of the writing issues, you can quite tell this same story with a, re- with a reboot. That doesn't mean it couldn't be tried. I think you could tell a wonderful story rebooting this with a better modern sensibility, with the way people think about things and the topics in question now, and approaching it better. Give us a story that's a better representation of Columbia and give us a fun adventure story and give us characters like this. But I don't know if it'll be this movie then. You'd have to you'd have to shift and upgrade enough that you get to be your own thing at that point. So I don't think it's a reboot. In some ways, I liked its nice little romantic ending, so I don't think it needs a revival, and I'm very uncertain about what to think about next episode. So I'm going to say rest in peace. But I am going to put one little note on that, which is I want a rest in peace, but I like the idea of reference. Because simply put, El Corazon, this giant, vaguely heart-shaped green stone, is such a brilliantly generic and cool-named MacGuffin it feels like something that should show up in the background or as an extra part of something else. Like, you're going to do another movie with an action-adventure styling? Have this thing sitting on a pedestal in the museum that a character goes into. Give us that little bit of like a, hey, you ever seen that movie? It's in the corner. <laughs> like, I love that kind of Easter egg. That little thing that stitches together... The, this like genre of movie into a greater in, into a greater world. I want that prop 
that MacGuffin to show up in the background of like a dozen other things in the best way. You want to see this jewel or that map as the next lot for sale in the auction house in an episode of Leverage. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the sort of thing I'm talking about. It doesn't even have to be the one they bid on. Let like let them be waiting for like lot 15 and lot 14 just ends and you see someone walk out with this giant green rock and you're just like, so that's a completely other story. But I know that story. Yes. <laughs> I love that sort of moment, and this feels like exactly the sort of thing. This year of movies was popular, was referential, was impactful. Zemeckis is an is a creator who always has something new, and this one doesn't have much, but he's known he's a he's a well known director. And so I kind of like the idea of referencing this. I almost want to add that as another standard option to our final questions. Revive, reboot, rest in peace, or reference. Yeah. Now, I, of course, know uh, about the sequel. I knew about the sequel going into this viewing of the movie. So I'm trying to put that aside in giving my answer to the revive, reboot, or rest in peace uh, question. I love your idea of references. I think that there's a a lot of opportunity for that with this movie. But sticking to our usual questions... I think this movie left me wanting a sequel. Really? Not because there were loose ends that needed to be tied up. Not because there were things that had to be pursued. But just because this movie was sufficiently fun to watch. It was fun to be with these characters, to watch them interact, to experience the way plot and coincidence and everything else tended to work in the world of this story. It was a fun place to be. And I welcomed the idea of, yeah, it would be great to visit that world again, to see these people again, to spend some time with them, to see what else they get up to. And as usual in any kind of a a sequel, especially a sequel where the, the original involved romance, there would be the problem of, are you going to undo everything that was achieved in the the first movie in order to have somewhere to go with the story? Again, a lot of sequels do that, and I think it's lazy. So I was I was cautious about wanting a sequel, but I really did want a sequel, and I, I still feel that way about this movie. This is a movie that welcomes a sequel. It's a big enough world. It's an interesting enough world. Sure, let's hear some more stories about this. I could almost be interested in some stories about Jack Colton's life prior to this, but not so much because what made this fun was the way the characters interacted. I almost, because in the, in the sake of the way they do the comparison, thinking about the the type of sequel you're describing, they show her editor being this person who's a little more adventurous than her at the start but is also loving these books and crying over them and all of that. And she's this comparison character as a litmus test for our heroine when she's more nervous than her editor went before she leaves on the adventure, but comes back this emboldened, ready woman. And her editor is there astounded at this story she's reading. I would almost wish the editor would be the main character for the sequel in that case. (laughs) It's like, send her out on the adventure. Let, uh, let uh, Wilder stay back in New York writing and having a romantic thing and let the editor have to go out on an adventure and come back. Maybe you could do something with that because that wouldn't risk breaking the romance you ended on. And 
you know, there's plenty of things you can you can do without breaking that romance, especially since, again, spoilers, at the end of this movie, our romantic lead couple literally have a boat that they plan to use to sail around the world. You got you, you can't say that there aren't a lot of story opportunities there. OK, I've got an option for you. The, the sequel is entirely a dramatic courtroom drama as they deal with the massive fines for having someone carry a boat on a carrier through the streets of New York without proper licensing, and the entire <laughs> thing's like the, like a political uh, and legal court drama. You could have a lot of fun with that. Completely different kind of movie, but they just take that one ending scene and just, just throw consequence. That is a great point. They could do that, because of all of the things that happen in this movie— the most fantastical, amazing you know, fantasy sequence is the very end, where they're bringing this boat with with all of its sails um, unfurled. Don't know why you would do that to carry it on a trailer, except, hey, it looks dramatic for a movie finale. And they're, they're trailering this boat down a street in midtown Manhattan, and the street is almost empty. And I lived in New York at the time and knew New York City well enough to think, this is absolutely bonkers. This makes <laughs> I, I was thinking, hey, this is crazy. This could never be. And then at the same time, I'm thinking, how did they shoot this? Obviously, they cleared this many blocks of this street in, in uh, Manhattan. How did they do that? They must have shot it really early in the morning. And put a lot of effort into getting the right permitting and they must have really been under pressure to get this in one take. I didn't even remember that the sails were open. That's even more <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. I'm sorry. What? Buildings that tall literally can cause small updrafts along their sides in the light because of the heated surface, uh, heating the neighboring air, which rises. You literally are risking knocking an entire boat sideways into an apartment. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that the, the buildings can pr provide a pretty good windbreak, which is suddenly gone when you get to an intersection. So these can these streets can be wind tunnels. I kept expecting them to get to an intersection, and bam, they're half, half a block down the other direction. But no, it worked. It's very impressive. And that that's... In some ways, that has changed the movie-going experience and taken a little bit of the magic away, because if I were watching that same shot in a movie made last year, my assumption would be CGI. Whether or not it was done with CGI, it would never occur to me this is an amazing scene to shoot, because I would assume, yeah, it was composites and CGI and everything else. 1984, that never would have occurred to me because it wasn't done. So I knew that they somehow shot this practically. I'm going to actually scroll back and attack that on as another reason why you should screen this film. Practical effects, car jumps, uh, m massive multi-extra uh, shots of partying that feel that felt so crowded that you'd expect it to be multi-layered takes in the modern era. And... Boat scenes and all and swinging vine scenes and all this are practical <laughs> shots. And it's like, that's great. Rainforest rainstorm plus small landslide equals water slide. Yeah, all practical. Oh that must have been fun for uh, for Douglas and Turner to shoot. Oh, it must have been. <laughs> and and I, I mean that somewhat facetiously. That must have been a difficult day.
Yes, but I'm I'm absolutely betting, and this is completely based on nothing, I'll admit, but just based on who had to act what, I bet she had a wonderful time acting upset the entire time having to go down the slide, and him having to go down first and what looks like the rougher path, but be okay with it, probably had the rougher shoot. Well, Because well, we get more shots of him And he came around. down second following her. Yeah. And... Some of this was probably just Michael Douglas, but some of it, I think, was character revealing in that he is upset that essentially she stood in the wrong place and wound up going down this this water slide landslide. And he knows it's going to happen. And sure enough, he has to follow. He's really upset for the first hundred feet. And then he starts whooping and he's he's going with it because he's learned. Apparently, there's a point at which you just got to go with it. And I think we see a great deal of his character in that strange scene of him sliding down from top to bottom. Ah, oh, yeah, that that is a good moment. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for uh, this episode of the IWMP. Thanks very much for for joining us uh, for this podcast, sliding down the, from top to bottom with us. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with, uh, well, we already tipped our hand with, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks with the Jewel of the Nile. Oh, goodness. In the meantime, Dad, uh, where does the ancient treasure map say that people can find you online? <laughs> uh, you can go to uh, buymatthewporter.com, and there you'll find links to anything else I'm doing online. Or you can go right to Twitter, uh, and you'll find me there at buymatthewporter. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as itemcrafting, on Twitch as itemcraftinglive, and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. That's where you'll find all of our back episodes, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, starring Kirk Douglas. And you'll also find links to our Patreon. Thanks very much for anybody who's able to support us there. You'll find a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and T-shirts and fun things like that. And if I, you'll find a link to our Discord, where you can chat about this or other episodes or give us your ideas about the movies we've watched or suggestions on what we might watch in the future. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.